and welcome to Voice. Voice is part of Lives in Translation, the translation and interpreting program within the Spanish and Portuguese department at Rutgers University, Newark. As my guest today, I have John Keane. John is the author and co-author of a handful of books, including the award-winning collection Counter Narratives and the forthcoming collection Punks and has received many honors, including a 2018 Wyndham Campbell Prize and a 2018 MacArthur Foundation Fellowship. His translation projects include poetry, fiction, and essays from Portuguese, French, and Spanish, among them the Brazilian writer Hilda Hill's novel Letters from a Seducer. He chairs the Department of African American and African Studies, is Distinguished Professor of English and African American Studies, and he also teaches in the MFA in Creative Writing program at Rutgers University, Newark. Hi, John. Welcome to Voice. Thank you so much for being here today. Hi, Stephanie. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here. I really appreciate the invitation. Oh, of course. Thank you. So I'd like to start with my guests by normally asking them a little bit about their cultural background and heritage. Well, I'm African-American. Uh, I was born and grew up in the city of St. Louis. Um, and one of the questions people have often asked me when they learn that uh, I speak several different languages or and, you know, speak, read uh, several different languages and... Um, I'm interested in translation is, oh, well, you know, are your parents immigrants? Uh, You know, where did you learn these languages, uh, these other languages? And so one thing I would say is, so my parents aren't immigrants. My grandparents actually moved from the South, one side of the family, from the South to the the Midwest and the other side, my father's side, they were in the Midwest. Um, So... Uh, so I guess there's, there's, there's the, the migrant story uh, in the mix. Um, but I've always been interested in, uh, in, in languages in general. Um, and from the time I was actually fairly young, I was always trying to learn other languages. I was very mm-hmm. interested in other languages. I think my, I was very kind of keyed to how people spoke and the, the kind of, you know, um, different uh dialects, um, idioms that people used. <clears throat> and of course, growing up in an African-American home in the Midwest with, you know, a lot of relatives who were Southern, you know, we, we code switched. So mm-hmm. I, I, I think I realized very early on that there was a way, a way that we spoke at home or we, a way that I spoke, you know, with friends in the neighborhood or with relatives. Uh, and then, of course, a way that I spoke in school, right. even though uh, from, uh, I think from kindergarten, at least fourth grade, I was in an all-black environment. I was in Montessori school when I was really small, and then we moved to the suburbs, and I was in a predominantly white environment. But so my formal introduction to other languages happened when I went to a Catholic school for seventh grade, and I was there from seventh grade to an all-boys Catholic school uh, from seventh grade through twelfth grade, and we had to learn other languages. So this was, this was a requirement. So in seventh grade, we started off with, of course, with English, uh, but also French and Latin. Mm -hmm. So this is a kind of, you know, European classical education. And many of my classmates, I know, did not like this. They were not very fond of this. You know, for, you know, one language that wasn't English was tough enough. Uh, and, uh, but another one was, was, a, was a real challenge, but I actually loved it. And of course, the interesting thing is, I think back now, um, I think now the school has changed so that if you don't have to do, French, you can do French or Spanish uh, in seventh grade and Latin. And I probably, if I had the opportunity, I mean, I'm glad I learned French uh, and I later you know, taught myself Spanish, but I would have probably chosen Spanish and then taught myself French. Uh, but but so we so I had this immersion, and then of course this is the, this is the my favorite part. And so then in ninth grade we had the opportunity to take another language. So I mm-hmm. took ancient Greek. So I had two years of ancient Greek, oh. and then I had a year. We had uh, they introduced German. So of course I signed up for German, uh, and I had a year of German, and then I went back for my senior year. I took a, you know. A, fifth year of French. So the, I had all of these languages. And then the whole time that this was happening, I was 
uh, also, you know, kind of reading about other languages. So one of the languages that um, I became fascinated with was Portuguese. Mm -hmm. And so when you have a foundation, you know, as you know, with French or Spanish, right, or of course, Latin, Portuguese uh, is, is much easier. However, mm -hmm. One of the things you learn with, you know, any languages, if you're not speaking to or speaking with people who speak the language, uh, then um, you, you don't know how to, you can't you figure out how to pronounce it. So my challenge with Portuguese was, how does this actually sound, right? Mm -hmm. Even though I was learning the grammar. So and I, I've, I've done this over the years. So, you know, I, uh, and then when I was in um, college, I had friends who, you know, were studying, I had a, you know, a roommate who was studying Japanese. Uh, so I learned, you know, snippets of Japanese. I had a friend who was studying Russian. Um, you know, I also realized, of course, that, you know, one of the major languages of the United States is Spanish. So I said, I have to learn. And I had watched as a child. I don't you probably, oh, I don't know if you remember this show. There used to be a show that came on PBS called uh, Via Alegre, mm -hmm. right? I used to love this show. <laughs> you know, I could even do the, the jiggle. Via Alegre, right? So, you know, so that was in my head. So I said, okay, I, I've got to learn this language, right? You know, and I, my, my Spanish is, is terrible, but just being able to read Spanish, I think is is um, is so important. So, so, um, so that was how I kind of, you know, was introduced to languages. And uh, over the years, you know, uh, I've tried to keep my skills sharp. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't always happen. But that's really sort of how, you know, my background intersects with, you know, interests in languages. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. And, and especially, um, you know, just hearing about how you, your exposure to it at such a young age. Um, so I, I really would like to know how then that allowed you to engage in multilingualism and to recognize um, language as being a human faculty. Um, so how did this then influence your work as a translator, as a poet, um, as an educator, um, and also as a writer? That's an excellent question. So so one of the things I would say, I mean, there's, you know, a very famous statement. Uh, of course, I'm blanking on who said it, but, you know, the basically making the case that translators are one of the way, one of the, they're, they're so important. They're, you know, of course, there's a sort of history of translators being anonymous or invisible, right? Um, mm -hmm. We think about, of course, translation on so many levels, right? But thinking particularly about liter literary translation uh, and other forms of, you know, simultaneous translation and diplomacy, et cetera, that the translator is supposed to be invisible. Mm -hmm. But what they do is they open up the possibility, right? They don't, you know, they, they do their job. Right? <laughs> they do the best they can. They open up the possibility of allowing us to encounter mm -hmm. other ways of thinking, thinking and um, being, right? They think, thinking, seeing, living, being, right? They open up these spaces of possibility, right? And sometimes, of course, with, you know, the, the stakes are extraordinary. If you're, you know, a diplomat and you're negotiating a treaty or, you know, you're in a courtroom and you are uh, helping to interpret for a client, right? I mean, or you're in, you know, uh, uh, <clears throat> you know a hospital uh, setting and someone needs to convey, you know, what's going on with them and you are the person conveying you know moving between languages right this is this, these can be you know life or death uh stakes but if we even if we step back and we think about you know just being able to move from one novel to another or one poem to another or between songs and things right this 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 translators open up extraordinary possibilities for cultural under uh, you know exchange uh you know um sort of knowledge production, et cetera. And of course, yes, the understand the, our ability to see our common humanity. And of course, which is in the, to, like, I want to be very clear that of course there are all kinds of social, political, and economic hierarchies uh, that should not be um, uh, ignored um, or underplayed. So, so I think it, one of the things that became very clear to me is uh Understanding that there were just entire bodies of literature, entire cultures, um, you know, that I did not have access to and that to enter them, right, I would either need to, you know, rely on someone who could translate 
or in my own case, you know, however faltering my attempts to do the translation myself, that this, it, it produced, a, you know, I think a kind of profound sense of humility, right? Mm -hmm. But also uh, it opened up as, for me as a kind of space of possibility, right? I mean, what happens if I learn a language and then can read a text in that language, right? Um, it, it, it's, um, it's an extraordinary gift. So I think this, it's something I've carried with me uh, as a writer, uh, as an educator, uh, as a teacher, right? The, the, to, to cherish this gift, right? Mm -hmm. uh, to try to nurture it, and above all, to try to nurture it in my students, right? Um, I think about how many of the students I've had, and I've, I've said this before, uh, you know, have this gift from, you know, their upbringing, right? Their parents speak a language, you know, a language other than, uh, let's say, the dominant language in the in the society, um, or, or multiple languages, right? And sometimes the students don't see that as something beautiful. Mm -hmm. uh, because, because, because there's a lot of, you know, pain. There mm -hmm. could be pain. There could be trauma, right? The, course, the entire, you know, sort of personal experiences and how those connect to language and culture and experience, right? And of course, the larger structures of, you know, uh, systemic racism and colonialism, mm -hmm. et cetera. Um, but, but I, so what I, I try to, you know, say to them is that this is, this is a gift. This is a beautiful thing. And um, to the, you don't have to use it, but to the extent possible, if you can think mm -hmm. about how you can use this gift that most people don't you know, in, in this society probably don't have, or many people do, but don't realize that they, that they have this gift, or as I've often joked, you know, a kind of superpower, right? Mm -hmm. You know, we have all these superpowers, these people on TV with, you know, who are superheroes, but, you know, you actually have a superpower, and that superpower is you can speak this language, you know, and, um, and so how, how can you, how can you nurture and develop that? So anyway, so these are some things that I think, you know, in terms of thinking about my experiences with, um, with language, uh, you know, how it's, helped uh, shape and, uh, you know, kind of develop my, uh, nurture my sense of, of possibility in the world. Um, but also I think it's, it, it also reminds me of, you know, my limits, right. Mm -hmm. Um, as a person and uh, that there's always, uh, a need to learn more. Oh yes, absolutely. Learning our limits is such an important task, but also a very difficult one. Um, I love the reference that you made about language being a superpower. That is so beautiful. And I say this to my students about how language learning and multiculturalism go hand in hand of learning about language, discourse, identity. Um, and this actually leads me to discussing you as a writer. And I know often writers are asked questions like, how do you work? Do you work in the morning? Do you work at night? When's your peak hour of productivity? And I'm curious as to whether your process of writing has changed over time. And especially during the pandemic, how has your space with your work changed? That's a wonderful question. So I would say uh, my writing processes have changed over the years. Um, I, I The last couple nights uh, there's you know there's a documentary on like the Ken Burns documentary on um, Ernest Hemingway uh, has been on and it's been fascinating to watch I mean Hemingway is deeply problematic and you know I mean the the, his, you know, the, his, the sexism and the misogyny or you know we have to register that he also of course was one of the important most important writers in American literature um, but I, I mentioned Hemingway to say that you know they talk about how uh, you know he, he had uh, this very sort of strict routine. I mean, he would write in the morning and then in the afternoon he could, you know, fish or play with the kids or, uh, you know, go drinking or do all this other stuff. And I think, you know, when I was younger, I always had this idea that, you know, writers had a very set schedule and some writers do, some writers do. Um, and also that, you know, if you were a writer, you know, you just wrote no matter what, right? So if you had some terrible trauma that happened in a sort of a personal level or, you know, there was a kind of larger a crisis going on in the society and the globe, you know, you would just write, right? Um, and one of the things I've come to understand is that, you know, everyone's process is different and that these processes, as I was saying, change. So for me, I think when I was younger, um, a lot of it depended upon the projects I was working on. Uh, 
when I was in my 20s, I remember I had a job. I used to have various, you know, kinds of like, you know, uh, not so great jobs. And what I would often do during the breaks in those jobs is I would always carry a notebook with me. So this is something I still do from the time I was actually even maybe a teenager up to now. I would carry a notebook with me and a pen or pencil, and I would go uh, and write poems during my breaks. And a lot of these poems are just terrible, right? Um, but I also realized, okay, it's not just writing poems, but you know, you can jot down ideas and you know, I draw, so I would do little drawings, and and um, sometimes, of course, the drawings were you know portraits of people I observed or street scenes and stuff. But often they were just like you know kind of things like straight out of my mind. And uh, I'll just jump forward to say that some years later, when I got um, you know um, one of the very first my sort of first iPhones, and I, there was a drawing program on there, I actually started drawing on the phone with my finger. And so people. We're kind of amazed. We're like, oh, do you have a stylist? And I was like, no, I'm using my finger. And they're like, how are you doing this? And I was like, because I draw. You know, you you, you adapt, right? Um, so now I'm actually sort of learning to, you know, not always, to, to, to type on a phone sometimes or type on my computer. But anyway, um, so I try to set aside time every day or in, on a given week, let's say out of seven days a week, you know, at least three or four days a week, if possible, Um just to let my mind create. And so, you know, it doesn't always work that that I'm able to get a lot written. Sometimes it's just a few sentences, but I try to let my mind, you know, just kind of be free. So that's one part of it. The other thing is that now, of course, that I'm older, I often will have a task, a particular, you know, written task to undertake um, that is related to, you know, university work that's more bureaucratic. So I try to set up a schedule to do th that kind of writing, that kind of, you know, sort of thinking and writing, and then uh, to, to make sure that, you know, I keep, uh, that there's a break between the kind of creative stuff that I want to do. And, um, and so sometimes it's hard to balance the two because of course, you know, uh, with, with, uh, work, university-related work, you know, I always say to people that it is not just, you know, the task at hand, but you sort of have to think, you know, several steps ahead. Um, but I try to, as I said, write a little bit, you know, at least several times a week. Um, in terms of the, the pandemic, that was a real challenge. Mm -hmm. I found it very, very, particularly from, I think, the... Uh, spring well into the fall um just emotionally very 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 challenging i think the idea that there were so many people who were dying mm -hmm. and the fact that which is always deeply traumatizing and of course people are always dying and we mm -hmm. think about you know the kind of hidden you know, uh, death tolls in this country, outside this country. We think about U.S. war, the wars U.S. is, is involved in that we don't really don't hear about, you know, Iraq, Afghanistan, et cetera. Uh, the secret wars in Africa. And we, we could just go down the list. Um, you know, we also, we just put, a, put them out of our mind. But this was a situation where I felt like, I mean, people were dying in New York and New Jersey, uh, neighbors. Um, I actually had a relative. Um, uh, who passed away, um, my students were losing uh, relatives uh, and so forth. And um, it, it was just, I, I found it deeply, deeply traumatizing. Mm -hmm. On top of which, uh, I was a young person in the 1980s. And of course, that was the AIDS era. And mm -hmm. at that point, you know, as a young gay man, uh, it was, I mean, there was no way you could, I, you know, I or people in general, of course, just like last year, there were a lot of people who kind of looked the other way, right? But there was no way I could sort of escape, you know, how many people were dying. And so I think, I, you know, I've said this to, to a friend of mine, you know, I felt almost like a kind of a bit of PTSD. It was like, here we have all of these people dying, so many of them, you know, black and brown, you know, African-American, Latinx, right? Uh, working class and uh, poor people. And uh, the kind of official line is, oh, this is a hoax or this is not a problem or, you know, it's going to be gone by Easter. I mean, all these crazy things, you know, and I was thinking, 
I mean, am I losing my mind? What what is going on? So so I think I felt like I I spent a good portion of the year grappling with that. The other thing I will say is that, of course, as we know, last year the there were you know there was a resurgence of Black Lives Matter uh, after the killing of um, you know George Floyd uh, and uh, Breonna Taylor and um, Ahmaud Arbery, etc. And so that also uh, I think was something I was trying to work through and think through uh, on multiple levels. And so it meant that, you know, my writing kind of slowed to a crawl and I had people reach out to me and say, oh, would you write, you know, about people that I usually wouldn't hear from, you know, would you, would you, would you write about, you know, um, the, Mar- you know, the, you know, the, the George Floyd killing, or would you write about, you know, the protests? And I was thinking, you know, I don't want to be, you know, performing for people. I think right. this is, you know, this is something where I think I really have to kind of think about this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the ways that I can support and, you know, um, make my voice heard uh, mm-hmm. on behalf of people who are protesting on behalf of social justice. I want to do that. But in terms of, you know, seeing this as an opportunity to boost my profile or something, I was like, I, I just can't be part of that at all. So so I would say that, yeah, last year was a very, very difficult year. But then once the fall rolled around, I felt like I was a- actually able to kind of begin writing again and uh, thinking and I, I felt a you know, clarity of mind and that's fortunately carried over into this year. So, you know, I'm back to my more of my regular schedule. Mm-hmm. Finding that creative space is not an easy task, let alone um, during such a difficult year. So you also mentioned how, how this past year brought you back to past events. Um, and that's something that you do as an experimental writer. Um, your work engages in historical context, both past and present, um, in exploring geographical settings, culture, social relationships. So how do you think about this process with your writing? Oh, that's wonderful. Uh... So language is the way in. Language, languages are one way in, right? They are a key to the imagination. They unlock the imagination. There's a, there's a visual component. I think, you know, the visual is a language in and of itself. Um, but I think about words, sounds, textures of language, right? I, I, many years ago, I had formulated this little uh, principle for fellow poets. And of course, it works for, I think, any literary uh, text. I called it the X-ray of the poem, although probably, I don't know, maybe, a, uh, <clears throat> so, you know, there, there might be a better better metaphor. But I was thinking of, you know, um, uh, to understand a poem fully, right? We, we take it in, it's a, it's a uh, you know, um, sort of sensuous uh, creative expression, but if we really want to understand it, and really want to read it uh, critically, uh, historically, socially, etc., we want, we look at every possible level, and this is a kind of structuralist principle. Um, you, from the you know phonemic and morphemic levels, right? You know, all the way up to the kind of superstructural level. How does the poem work in a given society? What is poetry in a given society? And um, so think so thinking about how language um re, you know um functions thinking about how it is the building block for um thinking in terms of history of narration of of the lyric um is very important to me and when i'm thinking about for example the stories and counter narratives it was very important to me to try and understand how language might work in each of those stories before I wrote them and as I was writing them. Now, it very well may be the case that a critic can come along and have a better insight than I do about what I was doing, right? Because they're able to look at them from, you know, um, uh, you know, a different uh, vantage point, different perspective. Uh, but, you know, just thinking about you know, how does the language of, you know, a, a narrative by an enslaved person work? Or how does a historical chronicle work? Or, you know, how 
what is the difference between a story that is told in the third person by someone who is supposed to be, you know, who's essentially silenced versus a third person narration, you know, in an era in which we think about a new, like, you know, freedom in a new kind of way. So these were things that I was thinking about. And of course, at the, at the core of all of these questions, I was asking myself was language. So I think that, you know, uh, language was absolutely fundamental to how to do to, to sort of how I proceeded I have proceeded in the past and how I'm thinking about the, the projects that I'm working on going forward. That's such an interesting process with your writing and asking those questions of how may language work and always having language at its core. Um it's just so insightful. And in your piece, translating poetry, translating blackness, you state that we need more translation of literary works by non-Anglophone Black diasporic authors in English, particularly by U.S.-based translators, and that these translations should then be published by U.S.-based publishing organs. Tell me more about this piece. How does the absence of text in translation deny readers um, a reflection of their race, of their identity, and how does it limit our understanding of the complex constructions of race and how it intersects with gender, sexuality, age, and such? Fantastic question. Uh, so I, I, I won't recap that essay, uh, and I'll just say, you know, you can find it on uh, the Poetry Foundation's website, I Harriet, but I had been trying to think about questions of race and translation uh, for some time. And as it turns out, you know, I realized before I wrote that essay, it, it, I tend to be the person who will, you know, I do something. And of course, it's a building block to something else. But to, so that I, my brain isn't totally crowded, I, can, I, I put it in a little, you know, file it away somewhere. But as it, it, it it's funny because I had, you know, I think at um, the Associated Writing Programs Conference, I had given, created a panel to talk about race and translation. Uh, I think, I think that was one of the places. And there was another, Fire and Ink, um, which was a LGBTQ uh, uh, gathering. I talked about race and translation. And at uh, Cave Canem, was that, was it, no, maybe I didn't do it at Cave Canem, which was a Black Poets Workshop. No, I don't think I did a comic on. But anyway, it, what I'm, I guess what I'm trying to say is that it, be, you know, in a sort of in advance of this, this essay, I had been trying to think this through uh, for several years. So I was, I've been fascinated by the fact, I mean, I remember when, you know, George W. Bush was president and he allegedly asked uh, Condoleezza Rice, you know, uh, when the president of Brazil was there, you know, he supposedly asked her, you know, do they have blacks too or they have blacks too or something like that, <laughs> which, you know, people just found astounding. But I think it's not so outrageous a question when we think about kind of the limits of U.S. education. I mean, it's a, you know absurd question, but on another level, when we think about how poorly educated we all tend to be about the rest of the world in this country, right? Unless we have ties to other parts of the world. I mean, think of this sort of official education. Um, it, you know, it, it, such questions aren't surprising. And I was very interested in the kind of very kind of complex um, relationships, the kind of complex dynamics of blackness uh, as it is lived as it is expressed and portrayed uh, uh, across the globe. I mean, so thinking, of course, immediately of, you know, this hemisphere and of the United States and, you know, the nations in the, we could say the global north and the, the global south, and then thinking of the relationship between, you know, the kind of the uh, circum-Atlantic world, uh, thinking about blackness, um, you know, in, uh, like, you know, in, around the Indian Ocean, of course, I famously remember uh, after the U.S. invasion of Iraq, there was this, of course, I remember one of the articles uh, in the New York Times talked about the black people of Basra. Right? And, the, you know, the Times reporter was just like, seemed to be kind of astounded. Oh, my God, there are black people in Basra. I was like, well, of course, <laughs> black people everywhere. You know, and then uh, I even blogged about, I think there was one of the kind of the Black Poet Laureates of, uh, I believe, I'm going to say Pakistan, um, who thought of himself as a kind of 
Langston Hughes type figure. You know, so, I mean, you know, and on a certain level, this just sounds like, what are you talking about? On the other hand, one of the things that you all, I mean, I think I've become very aware of is, you know, people out, as we know, because the U.S. is, you know, is kind of the leader of an empire, people outside the borders of the U.S. and people, even, of course, within it, people outside the borders are very aware of what's happening here, right? They consume U.S. products, right? U.S. products, you know, hegemonically travel all over the globe. So I was just kind of really interested in thinking about that relationship and thinking about just specifically for black Americans and in relation to, you know, um, black immigrants uh, and the long history of black immigration, which goes all the way back, right? You know, black in, in, you know, alongside, you know, chattel slavery, right? Uh, um, but also, you know, in our relationship, the thing, thinking about black Americans and our relationship with black people and other peoples of color, right, outside the U.S. and racialization outside the U.S. These are some of the things I was trying to put into play and to, in part to also say that we might actually learn something if we translate some of these works, right? And I was focused primarily on literary works, but I'm thinking about other kinds of cultural products. We might actually learn something profound, you know, not about just the rest of the world, but about ourselves, right? It might help us to see ourselves in a new and different and richer way. Mm -hmm. I agree. That's so beautifully said. Um, and as you said, translating cultural products and for one to see or even get to know a bit more about their identity through the through these um through the, these pieces of literature um and and that also leads me to you as a, a literary translator um you your work of course focuses on wanting to to know more about other other areas and to kind of br bridge that gap so you focus your focus is to perceive the text itself with its meaning um, emotions and characters, and to find that balance um, in remaining true to the original while creating an entirely unique piece that evokes the same response as the original. So how do you personally go beyond the mechanics of translation to create that target text? And I know this may change from from text to text, but what would be your, your normal scope of project with that? That's, oh, that's a great question. So let's take two different examples. So with a writer who is no longer alive, so with, I translated Cartes uh, Seductor by the great, really one of the greatest uh, Brazilian 20th century writers, Ilde Ilst. And so I could not turn to Ilde Ilst to sort of, to, to, Ask her questions. What did you mean here? Right. Well, you know, what 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 were you what were you trying to achieve with uh, this novel? So I had to figure that out. And so often, what I will do, I'll do a very rough, crude translation. Uh, I will, you know, uh, really kind of a draft, a first draft. And one of the things that that made Il translating Ildeo's work such a challenge was that this was a writer whose I mean, literary gifts were extensive, and her range of references was extensive. Her command of the Portuguese language was just astonishing. And in this novel, she uses every register. I mean, it's she. Ilst is famous because, uh, just in general, because she would in in the uh, she started out as a poet. Then she started writing plays after the military dictatorship took hold in the late 60s. Then she switched to fiction, I think, in the early 70s. I believe that's right. Or late 60s, early 70s. And then at the, for the rest of her career, she sort of alternated between fiction and poetry. And the fiction is also often, you know, um, quite experimental, formally experimental. Uh but because she started out as a poet and she was very interested in the like the various traditions, including religious poetry of Portuguese uh, and these very sort of, uh, you know, old, you know, exalted Baroque registers, she plays, plays with us. And this pop, you know, these, these registers pop up uh, in the, in the, in the prose, they pop up in the fiction. So with Cartes de Sedutor, right, you know, I mean, there are, there are a number of things that she's referring to here. So, 
uh, you know, uh, in, in European literature, well, in Brazilian literature, in Portuguese Luciferian literature, in Euro- uh, uh, Brazilian literature, um, in, in global literature, because, of course, it, on pretty much every page, she's mentioning a different author. So what I had to do after I did that rough draft was really think very carefully. And I will say, I mean, I consulted with uh, the one of the editors, uh, Hachel Gontijo Araujo, who's um, a wonderful, you know, uh, writer herself, and Stephanie Sauer, who's also uh, uh, who's based in the U.S., but Stephanie, I think, was in Brazil at that time, and she's also an amazing writer and publisher. Uh, to you know, get you ask sometimes ask them questions, and then there were things I just had to, as I've said before in interviews, I've had I had to re, re, uh, you know reverse engineer uh, mm-hmm. sometimes what what because they said I don't know what to tell you. Right? I don't know what else is doing. And I asked, I had a Brazilian friend who's a, just a really extraordinary poet. I would ask him from time to time. Uh, and he's, he would just even say, I, I have no idea what else is doing, you know. Um, but you know, she's she's out there. So, so yeah. So I had to kind of, you know, make my journey out there to figure out what was coming, what she was doing and come, and, and come back. And so, you know, I think um, that was my process with, with, uh, with that text. Um, it was a little different, for example, when I was translating poems by the contemporary Brazilian writer, um, Claudio Roquete Pinto. Um, I was invited to translate uh, some poems by uh, Claudia uh, a few years ago when I was at, I used to teach at Northwestern University, and she came to visit as part of the, what was called, uh, still exists, the Poetry and Poetics Colloquium. We would bring writers in, uh, scholars in. Uh, we would have different projects we'd work on, you know, con- there's wonderful conversations about poetry and poetics. And uh, Claudia came from Brazil uh, and they suggested I do the translations. So in that case, of course, I did my usual process of a rough draft or in several rough drafts. And then, uh, you know, I showed them to her because I could have, you know, we uh, communicator via email and she's you know there's certain things that she thought okay well you really got this you know or you came up with a really you know ingenious solution uh, because she also she does speak English and read reads and writes English but in other cases she said no you know you didn't get this right at all you know no this is no I see what you're doing but this is what I'm doing right you know and you and of course a lot of it had to do with cultural context you know um you know what what would someone who's a carioca you know someone who's from from Rio de Janeiro you know what how would they see this what would they what would be the range of references that would come up so that was also and you know a very very instructive experience because you know, you learn again what your limits are, and you it all. But it also gives you tools to help you figure out for the future uh, some of the challenges that might arise, right? And I'm always I try to be very very open. I mean, I've I had I used to I still you know still have a blog, and on my blog I would put my rough translations and invite people to offer criticism, and um, there was one person who used to write in regularly when I would post my translations from Spanish. Uh, who, I mean, he is a Spanish speaker. And um, I, I kept saying there was not a single time where he did not make a very, very refined suggestion about how I might think about something. Because he would sometimes just say, oh, well, you know, John, uh, you know, this is the, you know, this is actually the subjunctive. So what about X, Y, Z? And it's like, ah, you know, because, and, but I'm actually, you know, I realized I was learning from that so that when I would go to the next project, Actually, I would have a better sense of what I was doing. So, so that's usually what my process is uh, in in translating. That's so interesting. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I I say to my students so often that um, each experience is so different, and I I love hearing from translators as to um what their process is because it it will vary so drastically depending on the piece that they're they're working on. Um, and I I love the idea of inviting others to give their their suggestions. And as you said, it it really is based on that cultural context and really bouncing those ideas from one another. Um, and one thing I hear too from from translators is that it's such it's such a task that you envision a translator doing it in their home 
behind a laptop alone. Um, and I always say, reach out to your network, reach out to others that are maybe native speakers or anything in that case that can help you with that. So I, I think it's very interesting how you have two very separate but also intertwined ways of, of handling that. Um, and then actually, before we wrap up, I do have actually another question. Um, more so with your your involvement with Lives in Translation and how I'm assuming that you, you saw this need for um, just exploring the the linguistic richness of Rutgers Newark campus and, and your involvement with Lives in Translation. So I was curious as to how that started and, and led you to that. Well, I think this is another fantastic question. I mean, I want to give credit to, you know, um, colleagues in a number of fields, including, you know, Professor Jennifer Austin, uh, Professor Manu Chander, um, you know, people who have really been, you know, Laura Lomas, uh, Sadia Abbas, uh, people who have been really thinking about, you know, um, intellectual possibilities uh, at Rutgers Newark. And um, I will say that I think the concrete, um, the concrete step that that sort of led me to think about lives of translation was uh, we when we when our new our current chancellor, wonderful chancellor Nancy Kander, first arrived, and she did a, as part of her listening tour, she met with uh, I think I believe the people in the humanities, and the idea of a program in um, comparative literary studies uh, arose. Uh, and then, of course, you know, we were thinking about, you know, comparative literary studies, linguistics, uh, translation studies. All of these things were sort of, you know, in the in the air. And I, of course, I I'm going to mix up who thought of what. So we're, we're just saying, I mean, credit to all who were involved, right? Especially amazing people. Um, but I think you know one of the conversations that that was happening that you know I was part of was. Just thinking about just think our extraordinary students, right? Okay. Our extraordinary staff uh, and our extraordinary faculty. I mean, you know, we're a public institution uh, in an urban setting. We're an anchor institution, uh, and that has such extraordinary resources, um, like like New Jersey itself, right? And like mm -hmm. the you know the New York New Jersey metro area. So just thinking about you know our students, our staff, our faculty, um, the linguistic uh, potential. Um, you know, that we all sort of, so many of us walk around with and thinking about how that might translate into practical and, you know, um, academic programs, uh, particularly opportunities for the students to learn and use their language skills was kind of a motivating factor in how I, you know, uh, got involved with lives in translation. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, just seeing what the program has done it's just so impressive, and it's it's so important, especially now. I think it's it's so important, especially now. Um, you know, we need we need translators more mm -hmm. now than than ever before, right? We can say more than less, right? More than ever before. So yes, yeah, so that that, but that's really sort of how I got involved with uh, lives and translation. That's great to hear. I, I really wanted to to tap into that. So thank you for sharing that. And this leads me to my my final question to you, um, John. So for our students listening and also for other listeners who are interested in exploring literary translation, um, what advice or tips would, would you give them or suggest? So several things I would say are, first of all, do not feel that you need to take a class in translation to be a translator. However, if there is a class in translation or a class, let's say a literary studies class, a linguistics class, uh, if there's a class where if you, you know if you're studying a language, right? Um, you know, let's say you're at Rutgers Newark and you're studying Spanish or Portuguese, um, you know, it may be part of the class, but even sort of alongside the class or outside of the class, think about even, you know, think about trying to translate uh, a literary text. Or it doesn't have to be a literary text. It could be a newspaper article. But, you know, think about developing those skills um, mm -hmm. on your own. And then also, if you, when you have opportunities to, like, for example, listen to this podcast, to work with the professor, to work with fellow students, uh, you know, a, a TA who might be working on a translation project, um, you know, jump at that opportunity. If you have 
um, you know, uh, facility in another language. Try to make sure that you, you know, as to the extent you have time to do so, read in that other language, right? Mm-hmm. Or speak that other language, but especially read in that other language. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, because of course, in, in a sense, you're doing, tra- you're engaging in translation without mm-hmm. even knowing mm-hmm. it. But, 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 but above all, you know, feel feel that you are empowered to uh, be a translator if you want to, you know, take up translation as an actual. Uh, practice itself, right? So, you know, to be a literary translator or to be a simultaneous translator, of course, then you probably should have, you get some training if if it's available. Um, and, you know, above all, you know, work on your skills, develop them, mm-hmm. build them. And, and, and as I was saying, be in translation, is be in conversation, right? Mm-hmm. With people who are translating, or as you said, you know, if sometimes you have questions, you know, if there's a person who has a facility in that language, speak to them. Ask them questions, mm-hmm. you know, and, 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 and learn as much as you can. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's such fantastic advice. Thank you so much for sharing that. I, I know it'll definitely um, touch our listeners there. And John, I know you said you also have some piece, some works of translation that you would like to share with us. Yes. Uh, so one is from uh, Portuguese and the author is... Uh, Arnaldo Antunes, and, and Arnaldo Antunes is, let's see, I think I have his information down. Okay, yes, he uh, is a Brazilian musician, writer, and composer, and he was a member of the rock band Titans, uh, Titans, uh, which he co-founded in 1982 and left 10 years later. And he's now a solo musician, but he's, I mean, he just does all kinds of things. He does these fascinating concrete poems and everything. And he's worked with some of the greatest, really, you know, other Brazilian, he's great himself, but greatest uh, Brazilian musicians and performers. So, uh, but I love that he's a poet and a musician. Um, one uh, poem called Pedro de Pedro, right, uh, which is like a stone Stony stone or stone from stone, etc. And so it could be so many different things in English. And it's like, yeah, you, 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 even the title itself is a challenge. So, but this is called a thing in itself, thing in itself, right? Um, coisa em si, coisa em si. And so here, you can hear in the English how he's playing with the idea of the thing, coisa, right? Uh, and this, the, the, the resonance of in si, in itself. Okay. Thing in itself does not exist. Everything tends, suspends, depends. The sea that waters, the island waters, the continent, the air that breathes, brings known fragrances. Thing in itself does not exist. Everything is near, tangential, inherent. Stone resembles seed, sunrise, sunset. Thing in itself does not exist, even if apparent. Thing in itself, thing born of its own dust alone, without shadow, on wall, without margin or tributary. Not a thing exists like this, independent, without environment. There is no heart without mind, paradise without serpent, thing by itself, non-existent, but only exists is what feels. Wow, that was beautiful. Thank you. Some of those uh, cognate words actually carry over into English until you get a certain amount of that Portuguese music, even though you have to come, I had to come up with it. Mm Mm-hmm. And as you said, it is very playful. You do hear that. Exactly, exactly. But it it is. With, right, it's very playful and a parallel music, uh, you know, with, um, with uh, in English itself. Okay, and so this is uh, a poem. And so this is a translation by one of the great uh, Afro-Cuban writers, Jesus Coscause, uh, who lived from 1945 to 2007. So Arnaldo Antunes, who I read, was still alive. Uh, Jesus Coscause uh, died in 2007. And he was known as the Quixote de Cuba, right? So the Quixote. He was deeply influenced by Afro-Cuban and African diasporic literary traditions. And he was also very much of a political activist on behalf of the people and arts of Cuba and the Caribbean. Okay. And so this poem is a very short poem. Someone had actually 
you know, uh, sent to me, um, a, a musician, M.R. Daniel, uh, and it's called Mirando Fotos. So looking at photos. This is so, and it's like a, it's like a snapshot. I love it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Dagmaris walking away on the beach. Asuncion, her fan, her trim do. Gloria two days before dying. Roberto pointing to nothing. Idermis behind Oscar after Jorge. I so far away I cannot make myself out. My brother wasting a smile. My aunt as ugly as the word itself. Grandmother in her best days. Grandfather with a festive tie. My father drunk again. My mother like a perfume spilled in the distance. Oh my God. Wow. That poem just. It does. Oh, it's so, so powerful. It is. It's very deep and it's, it's, it really is. A, you feel as if you're there. It's a complete right. snapshot into what is actually happening. Right. It's his entire world in just those few lines, those brief snapshots, but language brings it all to life. So beautifully said. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Um, and for, for having this conversation with me today, it really has been such a pleasure to speak with you um, and an honor to hear your stories, to hear your works. And I, I look forward to meeting you in person soon, one day and safely. Yes, yes. You know, I was going to say, we're, 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 it'll be, you know, I don't know, not post pandemic, but soon I definitely hope to meet you in person. And thank you so much for the work you're doing and for this podcast and, you know, to everyone involved with Lives and Translation and the podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you, John. Until next time. The Lives in Translation program was created by a seed grant from the Office of Chancellor Nancy Cantor to Jennifer Austin, John Keane, Fran Barkowski, Andrew Gupta, and Tim Raphael. Special thank you to the School of Arts and Sciences Dean's Office, the Spanish and Portuguese Department at Rutgers University, Newark, previous chair of the Spanish and Portuguese Department, Kim Holton, and current chair of the Spanish and Portuguese Department, Jason Cortez. Graphic arts by Chantal Fishthang from the Design Consortium and Gisela Ochoa, to program advisors Anna Dichter, Raydel Rijo, Randy Maldobom, and Jennifer Austin. Sound engineering by Isaac Jimenez and music by Jose Luis Iglesias. If you've enjoyed this episode, share with a friend and subscribe wherever you listen to. Thanks for listening to Voice. This is Stephanie Rodriguez.